Well, there is a common everyday aphorism that expresses a reality so profound that even Almighty God has sacrificed himself to it. Something so basic that everyone in this room knows it. You've heard it a thousand times. There's no such thing as a free lunch. That's right. Why is this always true? <laughs> because the simple fact is that someone always pays. Through a human writer, God expressed the same idea in Holy Scripture. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no life without death. Someone always pays. This is so basic, in fact, that it was true even in the Garden of Eden. You pull a vegetable, you pull vegetables out of the ground, or you pick fruit from the tree, they restore us. But they die. It is in part to constantly remind us of this reality that the Lord invites us to his table to feast at his expense every week. Because when we truly contemplate what communion models for us, it imbues the incarnation of Jesus with meaning. The word incarnate comes from the Latin word made or into flesh, carne. It's why when you order chili con carne, you're going to get chili with meat, flesh. Someone... Someone with flesh and blood, just like us, had to bleed and die for the forgiveness of our sins. That is reality. Now, if things were truly just, it would be us. But instead, God himself chose to become flesh and blood, to become incarnate and offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. And in the mystery of the Eucharist, though through the tangible physical elements of bread and wine, we meet that same self-sacrificing God, Jesus Christ, and received and are nourished by that gift as we can be in no other way. That's why the gospel sacraments, communion, and that's what the gospel sacraments, communion and baptism do their outward and physical signs of inward and spiritual realities, inward and spiritual grace. Something is truly happening. They're not simply memorials, a human response to something God did, though they are most certainly that. But something spiritual and eternal, God actually does and is doing through those physical means in which we meet the incarnate God working in and through him, something is actually happening. In our catechism to the question of what benefits do you receive through partaking of the sacrament of Holy Communion, it answers, as my body is nourished by the bread and wine, my soul is strengthened by the blood of Christ, I receive God's forgiveness and I am renewed in the love and unity of the body of Christ, the church. That's why we eat at the table together. But do you see that? It's active. Uh, something 
is happening there. God is doing something. End of baptism. It says that is the inward and spiritual, the inward and spiritual grace of baptism is death to sin and new birth to righteousness through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. I am born a sinner by nature, separated from God, but in baptism through faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, I am made a member of Christ's body and adopted as God's child and heir, active, present, happening, doing. That's why, as Anglicans, we believe the gospel sacraments, communion and baptism, are so utterly vital, not just to our salvation, but to our discipleship as well. It is ongoing. This is one of the reasons that every year, on the Sunday following the Feast of the Epiphany, which was yesterday, we commemorate and contemplate the baptism of our Lord by John in the Jordan River. Because it also helps frame the meaning of God becoming flesh. In fact, for Christians throughout time, neither Jesus' baptism nor our own makes much sense if not considered in light of the Incarnation. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is a word that literally means seeing together. And although they were written for different audiences, they describe events from a very similar point of view and chronology as contrasted with that of John, which we looked at last week. John's gospel differs from the synoptic gospels in a few ways. It covers, it covers a different time span than the others, and it locates Jesus, much of Jesus' ministry in Judea, and it portrays Jesus speaking at length on theological matters. Think about John 6, where he talks about communion. The major difference, however, lies in John's overall purpose, which I talked about at some length last week. Should have been here. <laughs> if you weren't. It's always online as well. But the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and Mark, which we read from today, all describe the baptism of Jesus. John alludes to it, but doesn't write about it directly. Luke gives the briefest account, Mark is also very brief, and Matthew is the fullest of the accounts. He includes details about it that Luke and Mark don't. So I find it helpful to read Luke's and Mark's account through the lens of Matthew simply because of the additional detail. Matthew tells us that people were coming to John the Baptist to be baptized, confessing their sins, and he quotes John in chapter 3, verse 11, as saying, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, the order there is very important, I think. Matthew is making it plain that the purpose of John's baptism is to provide an opportunity for the Jewish people to confess their sins and be restored in and by those waters. It is active. It is present. Something that God is doing. Something that's actually happening. It's not just symbolic. And because of that, I believe he's inviting us to reflect on how God's God first created and then entered into and radically transformed those waters. 
Further, I believe he also wants us to consider what it, what it means for God to have emptied himself, which is uh, the theological term for that is kenosis and become fully human or incarnate. Because to begin to understand baptism, we have to understand the reality, the physicality of being human and what it means for us to say that God saved us by becoming like us. Building on scripture, the apostles and Nicene creeds make clear that to be human is to be physical. Now that may sound like a no-brainer, but they mention it. To be tangible, to have senses and to be sensed. We're not wispy, wispy minds or souls encaged in a body that's superfluous or foreign to who we really are. That was the claim of the Gnostics, whether whether ancient or modern, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, is a Greek word that means knowledge or to know. Gnosticism refers to, and by the way, just want to alert you to the fact that this is a massive oversimplification for the sake of brevity. So you're kind of getting the bottom line up front here. But it refers to an early Christian heresy generally united in the teaching that ultimate salvation came only through a kind of higher knowledge possessed by only a few and that human beings are essentially divine souls trapped in an evil material body and world it's a vilification and to an extent a rejection of both the human body and the physical world it asserts an unbiblical duality unbiblical material which is evil versus spiritual, which is, which is good. Or body, which is evil, versus soul, which is good. God created all of those and he declared them to be good. Very good in the case of humanity. Gnostics believe that matter is inherently evil and spirit is inherently good. As a result of this presupposition, Gnostics believed that things done in the body had no real consequence on the soul because real life exists in the spiritual. One's body and what one does with it is disconnected from one's mind and soul, disconnected from someone's true identity. Does this sound familiar to anyone? And even though Gnostic sects, and I'm S-E-C-T-S, Gnostic sects eventually faded in the early church, ideas have consequences. And Gnostic adjacent ideas have had an unbelievably long and destructive shelf life. Not to tangentialize, which I realize is not an actual word, <laughs> Not to tangentialize too much, but we see much of this same kind of duality practically, pardon the pun, but fleshed out in our culture today. Think about, think about the way a particular statement has come in just the last few years to be regarded not only as coherent and meaningful, but utterly unassailable. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. 
Just one example of that statement's unassailability, though there are many, is in our county's public schools, it is a potentially career-ending offense for a teacher or administrator to question that declaration or talk to parents about it should a child make it in an elementary school child. It simply uncritically and immediately becomes quote unquote reality. Now I do not in any way want to make light of the real pain some people feel around issues related to the body. But that sentence, uncritically accepted, carries with it a mass of what are innovated metaphysical assumptions. It hardens a duality between mind and body, granting absolute authority to inner conviction over biological reality. It makes the body into something like an instrument that a musician just plays instead of being essential to who they are. To the point that we are now in some quarters proudly doing irreparable permanent damage to children's bodies and labeling it as good. I am not what you would in any way call a culture warrior. But this should, on its face, disturb us all. And by the way, if you want to read more fully on this, Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is exceptional. But he's got a kind of a starter book on that, which is called Strange New World, and it's excellent. But, you know, seriously, I, I know that's heavy. But on a slightly more mundane, but still, I believe, dangerous level, within the church, we see this practical duality between the spiritual and the physical play out in discipleship. The spiritual, of course, always being higher and more important. Because of this, much, though certainly not all, of the modern church is functionally Gnostic. Since Christ, well, the, and the original Gnostics didn't believe in the humanity of Jesus. Since Christ was good, he couldn't have come in literal physical form because physicality is lower evil. Further, they generally asserted, asserted that he hadn't died on the cross, but rather, while the Spirit had united with him in his baptism, it had made a last-minute escape just prior to what would have been the moment of his death. Thus, his death was largely a symbolic act, a living example of compassion and self-sacrifice, which is today, though they don't come to it in exactly the same way, a common teaching in progressive Christianity. Gnosticism was maybe the most insidious heresy that threatened the church during its first three centuries, and the apostles and Nicene creeds were forged, among other things, to address it. The Apostles' Creed confronts it like this. He, Jesus, was born of a virgin, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
In other words, he was really born, really suffered, was really crucified, and was really, really dead. The Nicene Creed addresses it this way. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And because for us and for our salvation, God took on flesh. We Christians who assent unreservedly to the creeds understand that because he created us in God's image, we are spiritual, but also understand that our bodies are integral to who we are. In fact, we live out the our current earthly existence entirely within the possibilities and frailties of our bodies, which I'm discovering more and more in my 60s. And also the number of prescriptions that we take. And when we look forward to the coming kingdom of God, we look forward to our bodies being resurrected and made new. That's how both of these creeds conclude. Our hope isn't to go to heaven, sit on a cloud, play a harp, and live out eternity as a disembodied soul. That would actually mean hoping to become something less than what we are, something less than what God created us to be. Instead, we hope for the redemption and renewal of all creation, including the renewal of our bodies. Our hope is finally to become fully and completely human. If you want to have your mind blown on this, read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And because we are both incorporeal, which is spiritual, and corporeal, physical, not more one than the other, both, our salvation is worked out through both spiritual and physical means. In the case of communion, the physical part is bread and wine. In baptism, the physical part is water. Water plays a huge part in the story of God, and the gospel writers echo Genesis when they describe Jesus' baptism in the waters of the Jordan River. Genesis tells us, in the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the waters. The Word of God was present from the beginning and created the world. What the Word created was good, and God was well pleased. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that at the baptism of Jesus... The Spirit of God once again hovers over the waters. Once again, God speaks. And once again, God is well pleased. Genesis describes God bringing order to chaos through his spoken word. Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe God taming the chaos of our sin through the word made flesh. Genesis describes the abundant possibilities of God's created work. Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe the restoration of those possibilities through God's physically entering into creation in order to redeem it. These parallels are absolutely stunning, and they link baptism to God's acts in creation. In fact, there's amazing harmony with the sacraments and the meta-narrative of the scriptures, the big story. The four-chapter gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, or ought 
is, can, and will. Take communion, for example, the simple phrase, take and eat. In creation, the world as it ought to be, take and eat of the abundant goodness of creation was one of the first of God's loving invitations to women and man. Taking and eating then, the one thing that they were commanded not to brought the fall, the reality of what is. In redemption, what can be done? Take and eat, the body and blood of Christ is the solution. And at the consummation, what will be? Take and eat is the invitation of Jesus to his bride, to the feast of eternity that is marriage supper. And in baptism, in creation, water is good, essential for life. Because of the fall, water also becomes a sign of God's judgment in the flood. In chapter 3, can redemption we see in the baptism of jesus that he physically enters those waters foreshadowing his death and resurrection water itself is then redeemed and is now essential for eternal and in the consummation in revelation 22 we see the water of the river of life flowing through from the throne of god and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, sustaining the tree of life. Water gives witness to God's love for his people. And we're washed clean of the sins that lead to darkness and death. In the waters of baptism, we foreshadow our own deaths and emerge victorious in resurrection. By the way, that's why the baptismal font is at the back of the church and the Lord's table is at the front of the church. We process to life in remembering our own baptism when we were buried with Christ. I just have to say we bought this church and I am so excited about one particular feature and it's not the stained glass window we uncovered the other day it is that it actually faces from west to east traditionally this is how churches were all oriented to the east modeling Micah the prophet saying when the sun of righteousness S-U-N of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. We orient our worship that direction. They didn't plan it. I mean, they built it. The, the Nazarene Church built it. We didn't plan it. But that's a, that's a thing. I was preaching, right? Truth. Obviously, there we go. Obviously, water by itself does not accomplish any of this. In his catechism, Martin Luther attributed the power of baptism to the word of God, quote unquote, in and through the water, because the power of baptism isn't found in the water alone, but in the Logos, who is described in John 1, 1 through 14, the very word of God in and with the water. This is exactly what Mark, Matthew, and Luke are describing. By entering this water, Jesus didn't seek his own repentance because 
unlike one political candidate who in 2016 famously insisted he had never had to repent because he'd never done anything for which he needed to repent. Jesus actually, actually had nothing of which to repent. And so what Jesus did instead was to offer himself as the answer to John's call for repentance and restoration. So in his baptism, Jesus showed what it means for the word of God to become incarnate, to take on flesh at a point in time and accomplish the amazing acts of salvation of the eternal God. You see, when Jesus entered the Jordan, he actually redeemed water to its proper place and made even more profound the necessity of water for life. The water of baptism, as I said before, is now also essential for eternal life. And Jesus' baptism foreshadows what it would take to save fallen humanity. Theologians from St. Augustine on have looked at Jesus' baptism as a precursor to his crucifixion, often describing the crucifixion as the ultimate baptism. The Apostle Paul saw Jesus as the new Adam, arguing that in order to rescue humanity, it was necessary for him to experience the fullness of what it means to be human, to be both incorporeal and corporeal, spiritual and physical. And it's the unity of these two essential parts of our nature that makes us fully human and ought to be great news to our neighbors. Redeemers share vision ad infinitum, ad nauseum, maybe, is to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. This comes in part from Jeremiah 29.7, but seek first the flourishing, seek first the flourishing of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray for it because it is in its flourishing, in its flourishing, you will flourish. This means being present in the flesh, evangelistically, vocationally, and in substantive and sustained good works. In our generation, the marks of a flourishing church are almost always the ABCs, attendance, building, and cash. But in reality, what Jeremiah says is we do not flourish till our neighbors flourish. Have you ever noticed the unity of spiritual and material in our shared vision? To proclaim is to speak the words of life. To promote is to put our hands to it, to make it physical. But we want everyone to come to faith in Jesus. But if we do not also act, if we proclaim but do not incarnate the good news as Jesus did, we're actually less human than God intends for us to be. I really hope that you will join us wholeheartedly as we pursue this vision and live out the implications of our own baptisms in 2024, a year in which I guarantee there will be no dearth of obvious opportunity. Mm -hmm. What it means to be fully human and what it means to invite our neighbors into the same fullness of life will take getting physical. And I do believe that this is one of the most powerful lessons that the baptism of our Lord teaches us.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.